You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. It's not all a question of policy analysis. There are major forces at work here. I recall that when Secretary Gates came to us to, to make his swan song in Europe, he made one point that really I thought was telling. He said, people in the United States Congress are of a different generation. There's been a shift. They don't remember the Cold War relationship. And the same could be said of the European policymakers too. I don't think they remember the Marshall Plan or any of the cooperative bonds that have brought, kept us together. What I hope we're going to be looking at today, as well as specifics, is the general pr proposition that when we look at regional security, we're looking at a 20th century concept. I think the 21st century concept of security is geopolitical. European and American interests are in stability. And that means working together on, on a sort of supra-regional level. And I think that what I know we're going to be looking at this, after, this evening is to what extent we're going to collaborate in areas like Africa, formerly a sort of, you might say, a European region, and Asia, an American region. I hope that we're going to be coming up with some interesting ideas on how we'll be working together. I'll shut up there, but before I do so, I have to do what I've been told to do by Pauline, which is very briefly to, first of all, remind everybody that our security jam, this online conversation of thousands of experts from a whole range of different areas, military, NGOs, politics, and so on, is on, I think it's the 26th and 28th of September. And we're very much looking forward to people taking part and registering and, and uh, playing a role in the security jam. And we also want to make sure that you're kept fully aware and take an interest in our burgeoning list of activities which are not only in Brussels but Berlin, Rome, Washington and so on. So with that I hope we're going to have a very interesting discussion. Thank you very much indeed. Magnus, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Giles. And I think that, that was a great way to sort of set the stage for, for, the, for the substance of the evening. So I'm certainly not going to ruin it by, by adding to it. I think we will, we will leave, it, leave it right there. Uh, I just want to say a few words. So, so again, my name is Magnus Norderman. I'm the director for the Transatlantic Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council in, in Washington. Uh, and we're so pleased to be here tonight and, and, and for partnering with, with Friends of Europe, uh, not only because the topic is, is extremely timely and, and relevant, 
because it's also really good to be back with, with friends and colleagues, Giles, Pauline, and, and the rest of the team from, from Friends of Europe. Um, uh, I think our cooperation goes back about 10 years at this point. Uh, so, so, it's, so it's great to be here. Um, and obviously, from a, from a Washington perspective, the, the continued instability in, in the Middle East and North Africa and, and its many effects on Europe um, is obviously a, a, a transatlantic security, a major transatlantic security challenge. Um, and a lot of the issues that are at the heart of the debate, I think both in Washington and Brussels on, on the future transatlantic relationship, can also be found in this issue set. Uh, burden sharing, uh, the future, future counterterrorism, how we project stability, uh, and of course the, the future of the NATO-EU relationship um, as well. Um, and at the Atlantic Council, we've been in this space for about two years now. Recently, we released a uh, report called Mediterranean Futures. Uh, where we looked at some of the global trends that will continue to shape the broader Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean region uh, uh, in the decades moving forward and, and how that applies uh, to both NATO, the EU, and, and the United States and, uh, uh, and, and other relevant actors in, in Europe, of course. Um, um, so we're certainly very excited to be here tonight and advance this dialogue together with you all here. Um, finally, I just want to tip my hat and say thanks to, to U.S. Mission NATO, uh, which has supported some of our work on, uh, on burden sharing and the EU-NATO relationship uh, and our ability to, to do some of these dialogues both here in Washington, uh, both in Washington and here in Europe uh, uh, on the future of the transatlantic security uh, relationship. And, and, and certainly thank you to all of you uh, for, for, for coming tonight, and, and I hope you will, you will find the discussion fascinating. Um, Pauline has not told me to do anything, um, so with that, I'm, I'm handing it over to you. I'm Pauline Massard, I lead a Friends of Europe's Peace, Security and Defence Programme. Um, today's debate is entirely on the record. You're encouraged to follow it on Twitter. You've got a cheat sheet in the form of a programme with all the relevant information. Um, and without much further ado, since we've had two great introductions, thank you so much, Dars and Magnus. Um, I'm going to be throwing um, a couple of my own questions, because of course, uh, as moderators, that's what we like to do, abuse our power. But in addition, I'll be throwing in a couple of questions from European citizens, um, which were gathered on our Debating Europe platform, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and I think it was very interesting to see just how far Europe citizens from across all 28 still member states um, are, are, are interesting in the south uh, of Europe, are interested in how the EU and NATO can help stabilize the region. Um, and how our long-term relationship should be built. Um, I'm going to begin with, with, with you, Gogol. I mean, we, you know, EU NATO cooperation is at the center of everything right now. We've had two councils at the EU level focusing on this. We've had a NATO, uh, a NATO uh, summit. We're not allowed to call it a summit, I think. No, it was a leaders, leaders meeting. It was a leaders meeting, I'm sorry. Um, but of course, uh, tomorrow's ministerial will certainly focus on that. We've had a very, very optimistic sounding report. I'd like to hear from you, how does that apply to us at the neighborhood and what's the reality behind, I should have been using the microphone, I? I apologize, did everybody hear me? I'm very loud anyway. I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, what's the reality behind the slogans? What's the non-public annex all about? Where are we today? And of course, where are we heading next? Because the various summits that, and, and councils that we'll be having in December of this year should already be looking at next steps. Ah, and I'm sorry, I was going to throw in a citizen's question, which is, apologies, you get a question from Akis from Greece, 
who wants to know if you believe if Europe's security policy towards its southern neighborhood has been coherent and consistent? Easy one, right? Of course. <laughs> Thank you very much, and uh, I'm delighted to be here and, and join this panel. Uh, indeed, uh, EU-NATO cooperation has been in the limelight now over the past period, uh, pretty much so. Uh, summit meetings, uh, council meetings, uh, uh, always address uh, EU-NATO cooperation issues. Uh, I think the vehicle uh, comes from 2014, in part called Vladimir Vladimirovich, who, uh, who helped us tremendously uh, to, uh, to realize that, uh, that putting our resources together and find solutions together is a must uh, in order to serve our shareholders better, which are the member states and the allies. Uh, we talked about the joint declaration. You are familiar with that uh, last summer uh, in Warsaw uh, that identified seven uh, key areas where the two organizations are supposed to work together uh, later, uh, in December, these seven areas were translated into 42 concrete proposals. Uh, the big difference is not in arithmetics, seven and 42, but the big difference is that the joint declaration was done by institutional leaders, that is, the two presidents, Commission and, and the Council, uh, and the Secretary General of NATO. Why the 42 proposals are owned by member states and allies? So that's a pretty big difference. Uh, I should also hasten to add that, that another very important development is that it's, it's not just the 42 proposals. Uh, it's the mechanism that comes with it, uh, that regularly we have to go back and report on progress achieved. This is exactly what happened in early June uh, in both uh, organizations. Now, it is important because very often it happens, as, as, as you do know, that leaders come together, agree on something, everybody's happy, uh, we turn around and nothing happens thereafter. Now, we have to go back and report on, on all the 42 items. Uh, the concrete report, the, the report has a public part and a non-public part. Uh, the non-public part includes all those 42 items and what has been done. In some areas, significant progress has been achieved. In others, let's put it that way, work is ongoing. Uh, now, Foc the focus pretty much is on practical, pragmatic cooperation issues. So not big words, but rather the, the concentration of effort is uh, targeting really very pragmatic, concrete action. Uh, that's, a, that's a difference. Uh, but let's face it, uh, all these proposals are on the table implementation is, uh, is still ahead. So the coming period will show how these nice proposals and ideas can be translated into very concrete action. And that's what is needed. Um, now with a focus on the South, uh, let me highlight a few areas where bilk over, work will, over the coming uh, period will concentrate on. Let me start with with maritime issues. That, uh, that's a very important, practical, and important driver in this relationship. This is one of the seven areas, by the way, that, uh, that the Joint Declaration uh, identified. Uh, you may remember that the Warsaw Summit uh, practically directed Operation Sea Guardian uh, to provide 
ISR, intelligence surveillance uh, reconnaissance, that is information, and logistical support to EU's own operation in the central Mediterranean, which is Operation Sophia. That's great, and this is already ongoing. Uh, but there are two other issues that I would highlight that perhaps are even more important. Uh, one is about information exchange. And whenever we are talking about EU-NATO uh, interaction, uh, information, intelligence sharing is of critical importance. And we have major blockages there. Uh, so that paralysis that characterized the work of the two organizations for so long, in terms of that, are still there. Uh, but uh, precisely the experience on the Aegean, and this is a civilian EU operation, Operation Triton by Frontex, and NATO's military activity there, very clearly showed one thing, and that's very important, I think, that if there is a will, there is a way to find solutions uh, to information exchange problems. Through liaison officers that are deployed on each other's ships who can read their classified documents, uh, uh, or working through capital. So the point is that information exchange is so critical uh, for both organizations, for both memberships. If we cannot uh, find this, or follow the straight way uh, of communicating, we have to find solutions to overcome the difficulty and do it. Uh, the second is, which is, I think, the really interesting thing, uh, that we have two operations side by side. Sea Guardian and Sofia. Uh, they are using national assets, not EU assets, not NATO assets, national assets. These are the same German, Spanish, French, uh, British, etc., etc., ships, submarines, and maritime petrol aircraft. So, why to keep that thick wall between the two operations uh, when we know that these assets are very expensive and scarce? So why not to delegate the task to, uh, to local commanders of the, of the two operations and help out each other? Picking up the phone and say that I'm running thin on, on, on assets in, in this area. Do you happen to have a vessel to help me out? Many, many things can be uh, uh, done. Again, national assets. A German ship sailing, for instance, under NATO flag, stopping a, a ship... Uh, trying to do uh, uh, non-compliant boarding is not allowed to do that. But the flag can be changed. And under the EU flag, it can do so. So there are ample opportunities. If there is a, That opens up a very interesting future, I think. Um, SOFIA is, 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 is under review now, uh, and it may, become, it may be turned into a maritime uh, security operation in a with a larger mandate. That offers yet another great opportunity for EU-NATO interaction, focusing very much on information and intelligence uh, gathering and analysis. If you add to this the Commission's initiative to build a European Coast Guard capacity along the lines of, uh, of the Mediterranean uh, coast, then again it's a very interesting uh, new opportunity that, uh, that can be utilized. Uh, before we started, Jamie, I think you mentioned the lessons learned uh, uh, workshop that we will be having the day after tomorrow, EU and NATO, uh, thanks to uh, the Netherlands and, and, and Norway. 
Uh, that will address lessons learned on the Indian Ocean and on the Mediterranean. But not only. Also looking a little bit uh, forward uh, ahead and, and see, find out what is it that we could do together in the future, also on the Indian Ocean. Because both of us are, NATO has already pulled out its, its assets and the uh, EU is about to, um, to draw down that, uh, that presence too. Another critical area is capacity building. Very quickly because I'm running out quickly <laughs> of time. Uh, both organizations are building capacities in countries in the south. Uh, very often fin we find out uh, on the spot that, oh, he, you are here too, so um, we are almost uh, running the same capacity building effort. So there is need to coordinate a lot better. Activities and plans. Uh, three pilot countries have been selected. One of them is Tunisia, is in the south. Uh, Again, the idea is not to wave the flag, go there with the NATO and EU flag in the streets of, of Tunis and say that we are here together. Probably that would backfire very quickly. Uh, but rather to coordinate behind the curtain. And there are ample <laughs> opportunities to that. Uh, I don't mention, just mention, but not uh, talk about it, uh, joint communication on hybrid, which is an EU uh, thing. Uh, it also tries to build uh, resilience in, uh, in partner countries. We are running, we have been running risk surveys uh, in partner countries to find out what their critical vulnerabilities are. Sometimes they don't know or do not know well enough. Once we have them, we can target European assistance programs to provide help precisely in those areas where they need it the most. Yet another area to cooperate. Uh, the Commission has recently offered uh, 2 million euros to help NATO defense cap uh, capacity building uh, uh, programs, which is a great thing. Uh, if NATO is the, uh, the best delivery agency or implementing agency in the, in the, in the area, we should find European funding to, to support that. I can only hope that the Commission will equally find funding for supporting our own CSDP uh, uh, initiatives. That, that <laughs> exactly. Libya is another case, obviously. So I, I don't go into the details of that, but there are ample opportunities. These are opportunities, and the coming period will have to show whether we are able indeed to seize those. Thanks so much. Um, Jamie, we heard in Warsaw, uh, or we read in the declaration, that if Na NATO's neighbors are more stable, NATO is more secure. So what is NATO doing? What can NATO do? What should NATO do? And what should it not do to stabilize its neighborhoods? Um, I have a question from uh, Marcel, that's my cat's name, in the Netherlands, who wants to know what lessons you would draw from the intervention in Libya. And then, of course, we have to address the elephant in the room. Um, some of our transatlantic partners would like NATO to obviously look at terrorism. Is there much appetite over in Iver to do that? Uh, well, if you can teach parrots to talk, no doubt you've taught your cat to talk as well. Um, and a very intelligent question. I must uh, compliment that cat. Uh, or, and Marcel, of course, uh, the real Marcel. Um, no, thank you. Uh, again, I have to also start like Gabor by thanking you, Pauline Giles, uh, Magnus, and uh, for inviting me once again to be here this evening. I'm also aware, seeing many NATO friends and colleagues in the room, both uh, uh, present and, and, and past, that uh, they may 
uh, violently agree, hopefully, or disagree uh, with my take uh, on this issue. Particularly, uh, we have Ambassador Terry Stamatopoulos in the room, who used to be the Assistant Secretary General for Political Affairs and Security Policy, and who has driven much of the agenda, uh, which I'm going to uh, describe. So I hope he, he thinks that I describe it uh, accurately. I, I think to answer your question, Pauline, to start with, I, I, we've made the major leap in recognizing that the South has equivalent strategic importance to the East. Um, which may seem self-evident in light of all of the threats uh, that we're facing from the South today. By the way, threats which are not simply to the southern allies in the Mediterranean, foreign terrorist fighters coming back to Belgium or the United Kingdom or Denmark are just a, a threat to, to, to the northern tier. Uh, it may seem self-evident, but when, you, of course, you think of NATO's history, our DNA of collective defence on borders and defence and deterrence, which has been somewhat recreated uh, since the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, and the focus in the last couple of months on deploying battalions in, in Eastern Europe and conducting exercises and all of the media and public attention, uh, it maybe is not so self-evident, uh, given the urgency of re returning to defence and deterrence, that we would have the South as an equivalent strategic theatre, but, but we have, because I think this comes from a recognition uh, that NATO in the 21st century, unfortunately, can no longer have the luxury ever again of doing one thing in one place at one time, you know, first a bit of Bosnia, then a bit of Kosovo, then moving to Afghanistan. That's over. We, we have to be able to deal simultaneously with these two fronts. Europe can't be secure uh, if we don't succeed, and therefore the trick is going to be to generate not just focus and sustained attention, uh, but also uh, generosity. Uh, if we want France, as we've asked, to, to send aircraft and troops up into Estonia, then obviously France has a good argument, in not necessarily under a NATO flag, it could be nationally or under the EU, in asking Estonians and Poles and others uh, to pull their weight in, in, in the south as well. So that is what we need to uh, establish. However, it's obviously clear uh, that dealing with the East is easier than dealing with the South. Well, we're operating on our own territory. It plays to NATO's toolbox that we've known for many years of defense and deterrence on our borders. Uh, unfortunately, for the time being, the, the approach is largely military. I hope that soon we could have a dialogue with Russia that would allow us to have more of a political track, like we used to have detente with confidence building and so on. But uh, you know, nobody looking at the East would argue that uh, somebody else uh, is better suited to do that job than NATO. But of course, the South is totally different. Here comes the problem. Not one threat, but several. Not one country, but many. You, you can't have a situation like we had over the last couple of weeks, where the media have been looking at uh, our saber strike exercise, where you saw for a couple of weeks, you know, NATO units practicing getting through a 60 or 100 kilometer, 60 mile gap. Uh, you know, between Poland and Lithuania, Slovakia gap to reinforce the Baltic states. If only the South could lend itself to that sort of prism of a 60 mile, 60 uh, kilometer, or whatever uh, 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 space, and if you could stabilize that, everything else would, would come well, uh, would be well. That clearly is not the case. We have this in extremely broad expanse going all the way from the Sahel right the way through into the Middle East and right the way to Afghanistan as far as NATO is concerned. And so the first question is how much of that expanse can be NATO's responsibility? We're looking at the EU. 
should the EU look more at Northern Africa? Because clearly its uh, role there, I would argue, is, is stronger than what we have at the moment, uh, uh, particularly with the Central African Republic, of course, and, uh, uh, and Mali. Uh, NATO, of course, has tended to develop more of a security role, I would argue, perhaps in recent years with the Gulf countries. Uh, but you know, when it comes to this expanse, what do we do? Do we try to deal with all of it? Or do we look at one or two sort of countries where we feel uh, we've got the entree, look at Jordan, maybe Tunisia, uh, good relations where the situation, thank God, has not yet gone bad, uh, unlike many other, uh, tragically, four, five wars are going on other places of the region. So first of all, you know, what do you embrace geographically? You remember the old expression, Pauline, from your country, who tries to embrace too much doesn't grip uh, very, very well. Um, the second issue is, is, is an obvious one. Yes, it's true. I can even say it in French if you want to, if you test me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the second thing, of course, is that in the South, uh, military forces are necessary, but they're not the solution. This is cl clearly the case. Uh, you, you need uh, development, you know, capacity building. Gabor has mentioned all of these things very well. You need multiple partners. You're not operating on your territory. So the quality of relations, the trust that you have with the local players uh, is very important. And unfortunately, these local players don't cooperate with each other. Uh, we've had Saudi Arabia and Qatar in the last few weeks. We've had differences to Tunisia and Algeria in the region. And, and, and it's very difficult to uh, sort of plant, implant international cooperation on regional structures which are not cooperating very well together uh, already. And what can we do, not just to help them, but to stimulate more, uh, particularly on terrorism and foreign fighters and intelligence sharing, more regional cooperation themselves. Next, we've got the coherence problem. NATO, uh, uh, Gabor again referred to this, has three strands. The defence capacity building, which is the direct sort of training and equipping of local forces. The projecting stability aspect, uh, which is more of a sort of a long-term strategic political dialogue to assist these countries. And then, of course, Gabor, you're right, the pressure from the United States, from President Trump, for NATO to be more visible on counterterrorism. Are they the same thing? Are we talking about the same thing when, you know, when we put maybe in Berlin a projecting stability label on it or in the UK a defence capacity building label on it and we go to Washington and say, no, 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 it's counter-terrorism, it's the same thing, but uh, the different label plays more to uh, a local audience or is it really that there are differences in this approach? And uh, unfortunately for the Deputy Secretary General, uh, Ambassador Rose Gottemuller, she has the task of being a coordinator on all three, capacity building, projecting stability and counter to terrorism to ensure that there is some sort of coherence so that we at least are moving the efforts in the same uh, di di direction. Um, so, so, and finally, uh, there is the big issue for us of how much of the e uh, East is relevant in the South. And if we have threats from the South, does the posture that we are setting up in the East of multinational divisions, uh, integration units, uh, battalions, reinforcements, pre-positioning of equipment, do you need that in the South? Because there could be a tendency in any alliance where, where burden-sharing is an issue to say, well, if you've got that in the East, I want the same in my area. You know, why, why can I not have the same? Uh, uh, nobody, of course, wants to be a second-class uh, member. Uh, uh, and so the question, I think, for our military authorities is, do we need uh, uh, generic plans for the South? Do we need headquarters and structures? Do we need the same routine of exercises and training? Uh, would that posture in the East deal with organizations like ISIL, 
the, the jury is out here. Of course, you do need, uh, with ISIL now having chemical weapons or whatever the future of ISIL is, but no doubt jihadist organizations will come back in some shape or form with chemical weapons, with advanced cyber capabilities, with missiles. So clearly we do need some kind of military posture, but how similar or how different should it be to the posture of the East? So... In a nutshell, just to finish, because Gabor said so much about NATO-EU cooperation, I, I didn't want to sort of use up all of my time repeating well what he said. I think this is fundamental. But just to sum up, I think, you know, where should we focus the effort? How can we get the countries of the region to work together? Now that NATO has joined the coalition, uh, one of the last, <laughs> everybody else has seemed to be in it, now we're in it too, and there's a meeting in Washington next July, how can we sort of make that contribution to the coalition uh, uh, substantive. I mean, we're thinking of using our AWACS more. Could it mean more training, doing more in Iraq, uh, uh, particularly after Mosul? Uh, I think when we did join the coalition, there were two sort of thoughts among allies. None, one, that it should not involve NATO directly in combat operations. And number two, that it shouldn't mean that NATO would simply inherit the coalition and take over everything. So what, you know, how can we sort of become more visible under those uh, uh, parameters? Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, the EU is vital, but how can we also establish more interaction and more trust with organizations like the UN, very active in the region, Libya, in case in point, African Union, Gulf Cooperation Council, and get you know the, the things that uh, Ambassador Stamatopoulos was working with, our existing Mediterranean Dialogue, Istanbul Cooperation Initiative, to be more effective in terms of regional security organizations. Because in, in this particular area, the problem is, is that you can end up doing a lot of little things and have very little strategic impact, whereas, of course, what we need to do is to try it in the South, even though it's difficult over time to have the same kind of strategic impact that we hope to achieve vis-a-vis -vis Russia in the East. Thank you. That was five minutes, right? Absolutely, and I, I, I wasn't as strict as I usually am, but it's just because it's you, Jamie. Um, so, actually, Stefano, over to you now to answer some of these questions. And interestingly enough, a debating uh, Europe uh, a citizen actually asked, how can the EU and NATO cooperate to stabilize Europe's southern neighborhood, including Libya, which is what today's all about? But really, in terms of burden sharing, practically, who should do what? Who is best equipped to do what? Is it the old story of hard power, soft power? Is, it, is that old division still valid, or is that so 2000? Um, who is best equipped to do what? And when it comes to counterterrorism, you are now a free man. You can probably answer that question more than some of our officials can. <laughs> I, uh, I, I wish I could. If, I, I guess if, if I could, I wouldn't be a free man. Um, uh, let, I mean, let, let me just, just me take a one, uh, one short uh, step backward. Uh, why... Uh, in my view, uh, the cooperation between uh, um, EU and NATO has become so important and more important than in the past. Uh, I think if you look at the sort of the big uh, picture, uh, uh, is because if you take NATO out of the picture, uh, the transatlantic cohesion cannot be taken for, for granted. Uh, it cannot be taken for granted because of uh, uh, the new uh, American administration, which has, put it, put it this way, um, uh, out-of-the-box views on uh, security and <laughs> sharing of <laughs> burden and responsibilities. Uh, it cannot uh, be taken for granted because uh, with Brexit, 
and uh, even assuming uh, the best uh, uh, divorce between uh, uh, London and uh, the EU, and a uh, continuation of the security relationship between uh, the EU and London. Uh, Brexit eliminates uh, a link uh, between uh, uh, a transatlantic link. Um, you know, the, the moment uh, when uh, uh, the British Prime Minister will not sit in the European Council anymore, uh, uh, you, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, you, you, you miss uh, an important uh, uh, means of communication. I mean, the, the, the historically, uh, uh, the, uh, the various uh, British prime minister would uh, explain to the Europeans uh, the thinking of Washington <laughs> and then try <laughs> to explain Washington what Europeans uh, thought. It was a very uh, delicate and uh, uh, um, difficult uh, task, but it uh, was accomplished uh, successfully. Uh, on top of that, I had uh, an important, uh, very important country that hasn't been mentioned until now here, uh, Turkey, which is, which is extremely relevant for the, uh, for the southern neighborhood. Um, uh, and the fact that without NATO, you cannot, maybe you, you cannot count on the uh, consistent uh, commitment that Canada uh, has had toward uh, security in... Uh, or, or anyway, you... you uh, so uh, this makes extremely I important in, in, uh, uh, in sort of strategic terms uh, a, a cooperation uh, and understanding between uh, uh, NATO and the EU that would go beyond the seven or 42 uh, specific areas. Uh, um, uh, uh, there needs to be, I think, uh, at some point... Uh, that kind of uh, uh, consultation which uh, uh, Jens Stoltenberg and Federica Mogherini have, have, have tried to ensure but has, uh, has to be extended uh, to allies and member states. Uh, uh, as, as probably most of us know, uh, the same countries speak often a different language when they are <laughs> at NATO and <laughs> when they are uh, at the EU. Uh, coming more, you know, more specifically to your, uh, to your case uh, to the, uh, and to the southern neighborhood. Um, you know, who does what? I think we should look at it this way. Uh, who, you know, uh, either NATO or the EU, should do uh, what does best, and a lot should be done in, uh, in cooperation. Uh, both uh, organizations now have a uh, consistent track record in uh, security. Uh, uh, and so th they, they know what their expertise and probably also, uh, I think you, you'd agree, Jamie, they, what their flaws are. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the NATO-EU uh, relationship is like a long insecurity. In, in is a uh, uh, you know, uh, decayed old courtship and flirt that never <laughs> has never ended up in, in, a, in a real marriage. But this might be the time to uh, uh, make it maybe uh, what you call uh, a marriage of convenience. Uh, 
and I think the way, in, now concentrating on the uh, southern neighborhood, uh, I think you sh uh, there is no doubt that there is a, a, a security, a number of security uh, challenges. Someone has to take care of them. Uh, could be uh, uh, ideally uh, should be a shared responsibility between uh, NATO and the EU. Uh, mixed division of labor and sharing of responsibilities. Uh, if they don't, uh, nations have other arrangements. Uh, uh, we'll have to do it. Uh, in a way, we've seen it uh, with the fight against uh, uh, Daesh, where uh, there was a, an international coalition and uh, with basically a, uh, a coalition of the willing, um, an international coalition of the willing. NATO just joined it, but has been uh, for a long time uh, on uh, NATO has been on the on, uh, on the side sideline, although. A number, a large number, if not all, uh, NATO allies are part of the international coalition. Um, if you look at the, uh, what are the, the the challenges? You know, you can, I mean, I've tried to at least to um, categorize three main areas. Uh, one is immigration. Uh, the other is uh, terrorism, and the third is the uh, failing states. Obviously, they're, they're, they're over, overlapping, and one is the uh, one is the cause of the other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, you know, to discuss what what comes first is a bit of chicken and egg uh, debate. But, and in my view, at least, uh, the f state failure is really the mother of uh, the other problems. Once you have uh, an area, a state, or, or or a part of a state where there is no authority that is responsible for what is happening in that area, then you open the gate to uh, um, terrorism, organized crimes, uh, uh, you name it. So the, 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 the EU and, and NATO focus should be in partnering with uh, southern, the, the state of the southern neighborhood in such a way to uh, avoid, prevent, or uh, re reconstruct uh, 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 state failure. This, you know, to some extent, uh, is, is already happening. Uh, Libya will, uh, will certainly be a, a test case. Uh, um, another a very, very difficult test case will be, uh, also because there are other problems that have to do with the Eastern challenges as well, uh, the power vacuum which will open uh, with the fall of the Islamic State in, in Raqqa and, uh, and Mosul. That, but that's uh, uh, even, uh, even more complex. Um, obviously, uh, in capacity institution building, uh, you know, what, what we call now building resilience, uh, the EU and NATO can bring different uh, Goods uh, uh, to the table. I, do, I think it'd be important they do it together. One last word about uh, counterterrorism, because uh, uh, you ask about it uh, again. Uh, I mean, neither NATO nor the EU have done much. Uh, ever nations do, 
nations cooperate, but so far neither organization has been really uh, uh, has made counterterrorism its mission. Part of the reason is because counterterrorism requires an actual sharing of intelligence, which is something that nations are. And, and, and we, talk, we talk about a very, very sensitive area, and nations are, are reluctant uh, uh, to, to go about it. On the other hand, it's not, it's not just the President of the, of the United States, I think it's uh, the people in, uh, in Europe that feel that if uh, um, NATO, but also the EU, is absent in terms of uh, uh, countering terrorism, well then, my security is not protected. Uh, so, uh, um, I think if, uh, if and that, that's a challenge, especially for NATO, because you know the EU has many other uh, um, issues to deal with. But uh, can NATO be able to think out of the box and uh, have a role in counterterrorism? Uh, if not, uh, NATO as a central organization in providing security to its member, to its member will leave one area, uh, and, and an area that is important to the people, empty. Thank you. I couldn't agree more, absolutely. It's not about just the security of the, the allies and member states, but of their citizens. Um, I did like, however, your, your view that the EU and NATO are sort of stuck in the friend zone. I think that's one for the history books. Um, but, of course, we were talking about securing citizens. And you, Terry, I mean, you're a journalist, of course. It's your job to communicate all of this to regular people. I mean, we Brussels geeks, we get terribly excited about words like CDR and uh, NPCC and, you know, lots of very, very fun things. But <clears throat> how easy is it to get people excited about, on the one hand, EU-NATO cooperation, but um, also on, on, on the sort of the historical relevance of what this is? And is it perhaps easier to communicate it when it's um, related to Europe's southern neighborhood? Um, is, it, is it, you know, clear to European citizens how directly that affects their security, or are you up against a really uphill battle? And side note, what's the feeling? I mean, you are obviously, you write for an, uh, an American outlet. Do you get a sense that there's a different reception by, by public audiences in the U.S. and in Europe on these matters? Completely. Um, is it on? Um, so I write um, for um, American outlets. I also write, write for Europeans. Um, but there couldn't be a bigger difference in what people understand and are interested in um, and Pauline, it's so funny. Even the question you asked um, makes this evident. Um, if, if people are more interested in the South, I mean, no, no. And um, I, I have to um, also speak going through. I have to go through my editors before I actually get to talk to people. So I have to make those citizens interested before I can ever even talk to the publics. But um, I think um, one thing that I'm I'm a geek. I'm a NATO geek primarily, completely. Jamie, you're nodding. You're like, you're, but not a geek. You're not supposed to say geek. <laughs> I've been covering NATO for more than 10 years. I'm completely a geek, so I like this stuff, and I think it's interesting. And if I were to go back and try to sell a story on anything these guys have said, you know, I would hear, 
on the other end of the phone. So I have to try to translate this into, um, into um, normal people conversation every day if I want to make a living. And one of the things that, um, that I have to say is that all of the, the pieces that, that we're talking about today really, um, to the public, from my perspective, all add up to one thing, and that is that they feel more secure. Security now, as we've mentioned in, in many different ways, is really the only thing um, that, that citizens are looking for definitely from NATO and even increasingly from the European Union. I mean, in, in addition to, to livelihood, we talked about um, the difference between NATO protecting your life and the EU protecting your livelihood, but even people's livelihoods now feel threatened by the security situation. And honestly, I write about very little else. Almost, I would guess that most of my stories, if they're not sort of quirky features, are in one way or another about security and about these two organizations' search for more security. And um, uh, I, I, for, for those reasons, I've focused more on counterterrorism um, these days. We're having some new announcements out of NATO tomorrow at the ministerial. Today, the Secretary General talked about some of them. But uh, even as I listened to... Um, Secretary General Stoltenberg talk about what NATO is going to be doing in terms of counterterrorism to make people more secure. He's talking about naming a new spe special representative to Iraq. I guarantee you won't find one single citizen who feels more secure in their personal life because NATO's naming a representative to Iraq. Um, every time we talk about intelligence sharing, um, you, you guys talked about it between the organizations, I don't think that we've laid completely bare enough the fact that it can't even happen inside the organizations. It, you can't even get to the level of intel sharing between the EU and NATO because inside NATO and inside the EU it doesn't exist, if we are to be honest. And why, I don't understand why people aren't being more honest about this. Because uh, I spoke, to, you know, I sp speak to diplomats all the time. It, it, it goes only up to a very superficial level what countries are willing, what governments are willing to share inside NATO or inside the EU. And, and people are trying to be politically correct about this. But, but the truth is that many of the countries certainly don't want to pass anything useful to an organization that would then spread it out to 29 countries, all of whom have different levels of, of security, levels of sharing. I mean, they feel like you, you pass inside NATO, you pass a piece of, of valuable information and it goes out to Russia quick, or somebody else. Um, so inside the organizations, I don't think that we can ever talk about true intel sharing, which means we can't talk about true deep counterterrorism cooperation um, at all, because it, it just won't happen, and nor could any of us say it should. Would that be safe? Over the weekend, I was speaking with a, a diplomat from a small but strong NATO country um, about how much intel would you share. And he said, we wouldn't even give the names of our suspected foreign fighters to our NATO allies. Not even that. Um, he said, because we, that to us is too sensitive. Um, and, and so when you, when you realize that how useful that would be to other NATO countries or to other EU countries, and you realize that this country, which is a strong, uh, both a strong EU member and a strong NATO ally, wouldn't even share that. That, that makes clear how far we have to go or how we have to reshape our expectations for intel sharing and therefore counterterrorism cooperation either within the EU or within NATO. And that's one of my frustrations with watching this whole debate is how we just aren't honest. The organizations just aren't honest about how far that can go. Um, that said, on NATO-EU cooperation, um, having lived through the Rasmussen-Ashton regime, 
I can't tell you what a breath of fresh air the Stoltenberg-Mogherini friendship is. They love each other. They um, know they're good friends. They knew each other before. They, you know, speak very animatedly with each other. You really get a feeling that there's there's genuine goodwill, and they, they understand and want to make progress on this. And I think that the fact that 42 initiatives, regardless of how fast they'll move, were named at the Warsaw Summit more than in all of the years leading up to this summit, it makes clear that they want to make progress on this. And um, I think that even the optics of having these two, um, you know, the two behemoths in town work together is, is really good and, and really promising. Whether citizens, again, feel more secure, I'm not so sure. Um, I think that there are some some um, very, very obvious examples, and, and you've mentioned them, on which th there have to be, even with limited intel sharing, um, why is there not the maximum sharing in Russian disinformation? I don't understand why that can't simply just merge those things between the, the two buildings. You cannot put enough resources into, into fighting the Russian disinformation. There is no way that all of NATO's resources and all of the EU's resources put together today would be a fraction of what Russia is spending on this, a fraction of the effort that Russia is putting into this. And I cannot fathom why all our all the, the the resources aren't marshaled against this? I don't get it. And and the the returning foreign fighters is another uh, another area where the EU has uh, the EU with uh, you know more work with the police structures. It's really a police issue. It's a it's a local issue um, more than a NATO issue. You know NATO could if it if it can help with. Um, facilitating some trust issues so that you can share intelligence, that's, that will be useful on the foreign fighters, but why are, why are everybody's resources not going into that? We've really got to look at it. Um, there's some new figures that something like up to 30% of, of uh, European countries' foreign fighters are now either already back or on their way back or looking to come back. That's a huge number of people. Migration is another issue. Um, again, I think that it, it has been a success story, as people have mentioned, that there, there has been some very fruitful and very practical cooperation um, in the South when it comes to migration. Um, and the test case is going to be Libya. Libya has everything the EU and NATO need to try to prove that it can practically do these things that they're talking about doing. Um, you've got uh, now the Libyan, uh, the Libyan government has asked NATO for, for help, which has been something they've been waiting on for years. There have been meetings. There are going to be more meetings, I think, next month about what, with, with NATO experts and, and Libyan officials about what they need and what NATO could give. The EU, of course, is already working on, on strengthening the government, on training the Coast Guard. I would just like to add a, a plug for human rights organizations in there. I don't, I think I would like to see, um, as a human, a little bit more attention put to maybe not just shoving everybody back into those pits in Libya. That might be a nice addition to policy here once in a while. Um, but I think Libya is going to be where, where we see that the EU and NATO can work together. They both have strengths. Um, and God, Libya is going to need everything that, uh, that both organizations together can give. And I, I would really like to see that. that I mean, we broke it. We kind of need to fix it. Um, uh, quoting my old friend Colin Powell. Um, anyway, um, I think... Uh, I never get bored covering these two <laughs> these two things. I could talk a long time too, but um, I would like to more answer questions. And um, yeah, I didn't even mention Trump. Um, you can't you can't even talk about any of the things we used to know in the same way anymore as a journalist or as a, a policymaker, um, because you have to when it comes to to what the United States is going to do or say or think or bring or not bring or take away. You just have to say, and that's what people are saying about the ministerial tomorrow. What is Mattis going to? What is Mattis coming, willing to say? Um, 
the, the expectation now is that they're hoping he is coming with uh, being able to tell them when he's going to be ready to tell them more, for example, about Afghanistan. So that's where we are on, on covering, <laughs> covering the building ahead of, uh, one day ahead of the defense ministerial. And happy to take questions or just listen to the, exp the real experts. The real experts. Well, I think you've certainly gathered expertise along the way, but I thought it was interesting that you mentioned about, you know, some intel being leaked and, you know, didn't necessarily mention the White House. So that was certainly interesting. Um, I'm going to turn to the audience now for, for questions because I realize I haven't been as strict as I should have been with my five minutes. Tat tat to all of you. Um, but certainly I, I hope that we get some questions that bring us back to the whole intel sharing issue because I think this is something that has been coming back for several years. I think all of us have been looking at this issue. And I think it'd be interesting to try and understand, you know, pull apart the threads and try to understand, is this about money? Is this about power? Is this about security? Or is this just about culture? Or is it about, well, or is it about trust? Indeed. Um, I hope somebody will raise the question of Turkey. If not, I'm going to have to. Um, and, and I thought indeed the, the, what you mentioned about, you know, NATO protecting lives and the EU protecting livelihoods. This is certainly, I think, an interesting way of, of looking at it. And I'm afraid Giles has had to run off, but this was, of course, his thing. So anyway, I'm going to shut up. I'm going to open the floor. I'm going to take rounds of a couple of questions. So please shoot up your hand. Um, I'm sure you have lots of questions. I have one in the front. Just one. You're all very shy. It's too warm. Okay, let's start with one. I'll, I'll go back to Stefano because I know you you want to come back in. So, Absolutely. you want to ask me a question? Oh. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, just introduce yourself. Thank you. Yeah. Is it working? Yes. Hi. My name is Tom Welter. I'm founder and president of an NGO called Coalition for Defense, between parentheses Europe. We are the one and only private grassroots initiative started from Holland fighting for a strong, military strong Europe and much more. Not, we are not a political think tank, we are a do tank. Now, we are used to think out of the box and I have one very burning question, thinking out of the box. If we think about the security situation in Europe, do people think about the jihadists or do they think about a future war? That's my first question. Uh, the second thing is, out of the box, what about Turkey leaving NATO, supported by Russia, because it wants to restore its Ottoman Empire, like the Russians like to restore the influence in Eastern Europe? Uh, how do you think Israel, as a safe gateway to Southern Europe, will act in that situation? That's a different uh, out-of-the-box question. Thank you very much, Don. So I'm going to turn first of all to, to Stefano, who wanted to ask a Terry question, and then let, let you guys engage on, on, on these. Uh, um, well, Can you just take the microphone? Sorry. Uh, if I understood uh, you correctly, you, you explained the difficulty you have to uh, get to, the, uh, to an American audience about the, uh, the, the, the threats from the South. But how come... Uh, what about the, uh, uh, President Trump's uh, travel ban, which actually uh, is based on a perception of threat exactly from certain, some countries of the South? My answer to that is that I cover Europe, so that's somebody else's job. No, see, I, need to make them, I need to make them care about European issues, and migration is an issue that they cared about, but they don't see that as it's not, it's not seen in, in, a secure, you know, in the security um, framework in the same way that it is here. 
That's a small question. Can I just answer a quick one on this? One thing we didn't say that we should is, and all of us should look at that, is that what you see as a threat very much, and everybody knows this, so I'll just reframe it, depends on where you are. If you're an Estonian, you go, Islamist jihadist, meh, migration, meh, they've got like two, you know, they're taking two people. Um, I think that's not an exaggeration. Um, uh, so, so, but then you say hybrid warfare, and they're like, that's where we should be spending all our money. That's the real threat. You talk to the, to the Greeks or to the Italians, and it's completely Russia, meh, you know, but migration, yes. Um, open borders, yes. So I, I think that, again, I, I, I empathize with, with both organizations having to, you know, span this, this, this threat, uh, sort of threat spectrum because it, it's so different. And if you, it, it, you know, where you are geopolitically depends on what you think of as a threat and what your citizens view as a threat. And I should have said that when I was talking about citizens' perspectives. And of course this is one of the problems that uh, you know, uh, critics of European de defense cooperation are putting forward is that there's not one coherent threat assessment um, at European level. But in fact the question is how can we turn this diversity into a strength and thus turn you know, uh, our, our, our capacities into, into different modes of reaction to these. Um, Jamie and then Stephanie. Uh, yeah, if I may, just a, a few uh, thoughts uh, from what came out. I, I think, for example, on NATO and terrorism, we, we've got to be realistic. I, I go to a lot of terrorism events. I was at one in Paris today. And the three main topics every time you go to a terrorist event are how do we take down jihadist propaganda on the Internet and persuade the Internet service providers to do it more quickly? Topic number one. Number two, how do we deal with the encryption problem? in a way that you know, secures privacy for the citizen but allows intelligence agents to do their job. And number three, as you see in France at the moment, what kind of extra powers should we give to the police and the intelligence services to impose control orders or travel bans or some kind of restrictions on people who are on watch lists? Uh, they are not NATO things. But the, the, but the reason I mention those is to understand that clearly this is such a vast problem requiring so many different actors that it's not a shame for either the EU, uh, which has a very big role, bigger than NATO, or, or NATO to say, look, you know, we're not the best people to do this kind of thing. Um, uh, and let's be honest about where we can contribute and where we can't. Uh, and I think there are a couple of areas uh, where NATO can make a contribution. We've mentioned the capacity building issues, although we have to get serious about that because you, you can't do that just with a couple of dozen people in Baghdad. Uh, you know, you need proper military structures, uh, force generation, proper training establishments, a long-term commitment, some kind of footprint in the region, and, and, and to realize that it's a 20-, 30-year enterprise, but we need to do that. The second thing uh, we can do capabilities. I've spent a lot of my time at NATO. This came under Gabor when I worked under him at NATO a few years ago uh, with our Defense Against Terrorism program of work. This doesn't get much publicity, but I think this is probably the best things that we've done so far, working on biometrics, human network analysis, all kinds of ways to counter explosive devices. We're now training the UN in Madrid. Uh, uh, on these kind of skills and, and, and the like. And I agree with you uh, on the intelligence sharing, but I, I personally don't expect uh, countries to distribute among 30,000 people uh, on an internet connection details about a special forces operation which is going into sort of a place outside Raqqa at 5 o'clock in the morning. That, that's understood and there's no reason for the rest of NATO to know about that. So I think we've got to again be clear what we're trying to achieve, which is a more strategic level type of intelligence on trends 
groups, try to predict, you know, where ISIL is going to be after Rackler and Mosul, what kind of organization it's going to be, and to ask ourselves whether we should be more proactive. For example, uh, the majority of the foreign fighters come from Tunisia. By far, the overwhelming majority in terms of one single country, Tunisia. Um, and uh, those people will find it easier to go back to Tunisia than the Europeans to come back to Europe. What are the consequences for a country which so far is seen as one of the more stable partners in the Middle East? So I think you know, we need to sort of do this you know, thinking ahead. Second observation, very briefly, because of course others want their, their say as well. I know that. But the second thing is... If you really study terrorism, and I try to, 90% um, of all of the terrorist victims are in about eight countries of the world, only eight countries, the Afghanistans, the Pakistans, the Somalias, the Iraqs, you know, Syria, you can guess which ones. And all of them are connected to wars. It's the wars that suck in the terrorism. It's the terrorism that contributes to the wars. It's the wars that suck into the foreign fighters. And, of course, we may not be immediately victim of the violence itself, but of the consequences, the migrants, the displaced people, the 200,000 people in Yemen now who are affected by cholera, of these instabilities. So, to my mind, we, we sort of need to sort of see terrorism not so much as blood on the streets, although that will always get the media attention, but the way in which these instabilities are sucking people in and creating these sort of kickbacks against us. I, 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 I wanted to uh, add that uh, too. Um, anyway, those are, for the time being, those two comments. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Gabor, I'm going to come to you because you've been very patient. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, very few quick points, uh, starting with Intel. And, of course, I, f I fully agree. It's not uh, a problem. The problem is not only uh, how the two organizations can share intelligence between themselves, indeed, within the uh, within one organization, uh, it is already very difficult. And if we compare, for instance, the uh, amount of intelligence or the, the sensitivity of the information, for instance, shared between the Five I, within the Five I community uh, versus NATO, then obviously we would have a pretty clear picture of where uh, the more substantive information and intelligence is, is being shared. Uh, we need to make, however, a clear distinction here, uh, just for the sake of, of, of fairness, between operational intelligence and assessments, that is, trend analysis. With regard to the latter, I think uh, there is scope for doing more. Operational intelligence, that's a lot more sensitive. And if it gets leaked, all kinds of problems. Uh, so it's a matter of trust, precisely as, as, as you said. Precisely as much as cyber, but that's also intelligence. Uh, and that's a very clearly a limit. Um, then another one on uh, on um, Terry. I think you mentioned that uh, Russian disinformation and so little effort. Uh, yeah, if I'm looking at the EU, and we have a, a uh, uh, Stratcom East team that was set up uh, a year ago, uh, and they are doing a tremendous job. Uh, no funding? 200,000 euros per year, 11 persons. On the NATO side, is it any bigger? No, no certainly not. It is. Is that a problem, Stratcom? Yes, because, for instance, President Putin very clearly understood uh, that, uh, that forming or influencing public opinion is a domain where he can fight wars and successfully. 
So I think uh, should one invest more into it? Uh, I think so. Uh, it is up to member states to decide whether they want to do it individually and then coordinate the effort or whether they want to pool the resources within the institutions. I don't know what is the answer, probably both. Uh, future will show. Uh, on um, threat perceptions are indeed very different. So we have common strategies, we have loads of things, but very honestly, uh, a Baltic state uh, uh, threat perception is very different from a southern uh, state uh, threat perception. There will be issues that will, uh, that will be very important to address these difficulties in a very open way. For instance, when we are establishing European-level capability priorities. So what are the cap cap capabilities that we, that we require? Whose uh, capability needs um, will be satisfied more with those, hopefully, in part, uh, European-funded projects? So these are very real issues, and I think the big challenge is how to make sure that we can embrace. That is not to say if, if a group of countries or individual countries come with their own requirements, those should not be swept aside that, no, no, it's not a European-level uh, capability uh, priority. They need to be integrated into it because otherwise we wouldn't be surprised if they turn around and say that, you know, what is it that I'm getting out of this cooperation in terms of solidarity? And just one last thing to, to mention, this is EU-NATO cooperation in the South. Um, I mean, let's face it, uh, the EU is investing a lot more heavily into it because it's a broad issue. So even if we just talk about CP, it's about counter-radicalization, it's about building uh, governance, it's uh, uh, state building. That's what the EU has been doing all along in Africa and Eastern Europe and elsewhere. State building, building capacities in all critical core areas so that the state could start functioning properly. Think of the 80 billion euros that the EU is spending just on development assistance annually. I'm not suggesting that there is no scope for cooperation. There is. But precisely as, uh, as Jamie was, uh, was saying, we need to be clear about uh, what the scope of action is, both for NATO and in terms of uh, the two institutions' cooperation. Um, Stefan, over to you, and then I'll have a couple of follow-up questions. Um, yes, yeah, so, um, uh, I'll take, I'll take Turkey. Um, uh, well, I, uh, I think um, looking at, uh, too, f too far ahead uh, could be misleading. Uh, what worries me and uh, is uh, this has been barely, barely mentioned, maybe because it's southeast and not just south. Uh, the dispute is uh, about Qatar because uh, uh, the risk is that this split uh, in, uh, could throw Qatar into Iran's arms. Well, if you were a Qatari, what would you do? The only way to get food is from Iran. You get food, food from Iran. <laughs> the only way your planes can fly out of Qatar is through, through, uh, through Iranian space. Uh, this 
may be may create uh, a difference between uh, Europeans and, uh, uh, and and the Trump administration, and does put it Turkey in a very uh, difficult spot because uh, Turkey is, uh, is supporting Qatar. So uh, this is, and you know, I uh, I wonder because uh, Terry, you work very closely with the uh, Istanbul Cooperation Initiative, which includes. Uh, both sides, you know, uh, because it includes Bahrain and uh, uh, UAE and Qatar, and the, and Oman and Kuwait that tried to mediate. Uh, do you think it, it can be healed? Uh, was or was something which was already uh, simmering uh, uh, within the, uh, the the ICI? Thank you very much, uh, since uh, Jamie outed me uh, before. <laughs> but you were in the front row. Yeah, I did. Uh, if, if I may, let me say a couple of things on NATO-EU uh, cooperation. Um, first of all, um, I'm, I'm very happy to see that it's continuing. Um, the 42 uh, projects uh, or areas for cooperation, you're absolutely right uh, uh, in uh, saying, Gabor, that... Uh, the declaration that we were able to push through was signed by the three heads of the organizations, whereas the other involves the member states. One note of caution, uh, we shouldn't overly, however, now shift into focusing on the areas of cooperation and on projects and uh, lose the incentive and the momentum of the strategic level because I think this is even more important. And that is also where the two organizations are slightly in deficit. Turkey was mentioned with reference to the Gulf, but uh, its influence extends uh, a little more. And I think everybody needs to take the broader view here and, and look at the broader good as we did when we were able to do a NAC-PSC meeting on the 5th of March uh, 2014, right after uh, uh, you know Putin was uh, starting in Crimea, and I think this needs to continue. I think it's imperative, and I think this was the spirit behind the joint declaration uh, in in the first place. On intelligence, I would agree that the strategic and the trend is more important than the detail for 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 NATO and EU, and definitely for their cooperation um, on. Uh, Cooperation on the ground there, there's tremendous scope. Tunisia was mentioned. It was one of the three countries that we identified when we set up uh, this mechanism. But I think Libya is of uh, primordial uh, importance because it's not only a test case, but it's actually an, a real problem that needs to to be solved. And my argument was, uh, and there I uh, didn't succeed, uh, I did all right in NATO-EU, but I was pushing for trilateral cooperation on Libya, which would involve the UN, but I think this will come uh, in, in uh, of itself. Uh, now, on, on the Gulf, we had uh, engaged in a very strong initiative to get the Gulf countries on board, the four ICI countries, but also Saudi Arabia and Oman, especially Saudi Arabia, because I think the Omanis uh, are likely to follow. Uh, and uh, I had initiated uh, strong ties also with the GCC secretariat and my uh, counterpart uh, there, and I think this needs to continue. 
Let me point out that also Kuwait uh, set up this uh, um, center for cooperation there, and I think there we uh, NATO needs to focus more than it actually has, I think, in pushing this program. Uh, the Kuwaitis are, are willing to do more. They have the money. And I think I think NATO needs to come up with ideas, and there may be scope to draw the EU a little more into uh, into that as well. Now, the problem with Qatar is uh, significant, uh, and uh, it needs to be solved, and it needs to be solved now. Uh, you know, this cannot be allowed to fester. I saw this afternoon uh, before I, I came uh, an Emirati high ambassador. Uh, really lambasting not only Qatar, but in the same phrase, Turkey as well, as, hap as, as uh, helping Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, and all these uh, groups, and so on and so forth. Now the rhetoric needs to be toned down. And I think uh, more realistic views on both sides of the divide need to uh, prevail, and the Qataris need to pull back because, well, I don't want in a public forum to say much, but... Uh, you know, they have been engaging in activities which perhaps uh, they shouldn't have. Uh, I don't think that NATO can do anything uh, there as NATO, but uh, in, in the Gulf area, NATO does have partnerships, and it should uh, do that, and it should continue the uh, um, uh, aggressive uh, friendship uh, initiative towards the uh, Saudis, I think uh, this is uh, extremely uh, important and needs to be done. One last thing on uh, transatlantic uh, NATO EU. In uh, this, I put put as a form in the form of a question: If the Trump administration, as such, is not focusing that much on NATO and EU and on the South in the same way. Uh, does that not create a stronger need for NATO-EU cooperation as such? I mean, to, 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 to keep the transatlantic bridge going uh, there. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I think that's, that's what Stefano was saying earlier. Um, I'm going to go to Professor Toman in the back, and then I'm going to ask you to answer. Um, I wanted to throw in a quick question on uh, <clears throat> the whole stratcoms versus Russian troll armies thing, and isn't it time to bring in the private sector? I mean, it seems that, you know, tiny startups are doing a hell of a lot better than, you know, and with probably a lot less than 11 people into 100,000 euros. But that we can discuss later over drinks. But over to you, Professor. Yeah, thank you. Pierre-Manuel Toman, expert in geopolitics, Eurocontinent. My question is about this um, uh, cooperation between NATO and the EU in the EU Global Strategy, uh, published in June uh, 2016. It is written that EU must achieve um, strategic autonomy. But at the same time, it's written that EU should, be, should work in complementarity with NATO. But there is a fundamental contradiction there because uh, if EU has to, be, has to reach autonomic strategy, it must duplicate, like uh, uh, you know, military headquarters, but also capabilities. Sorry, can I just ask you to come to the question because we're actually... We yes, should be finishing. So, Thank there you. Is, uh, how can we answer this uh, fundamental... Uh, uh, a problem of uh, contradiction uh, because the EU needs strategic autonomy, so it cannot be complementary to NATO. And second, when we focus on the threats, 
uh, on EU is mainly from the south is of course jihadism. But uh, jihadism is produced by mass immigration, not non-integration of minorities on EU soil, and past mistakes of regime change policies, mainly uh, done by the United States, like the Iraq War. So although we have a guarantee in the future with a cooperation, cooperation with NATO, that the U.S. doesn't do its disruptive policies in the Middle East. Thank you. Right, so two minutes each. This time, please, let's take to two minutes. Look, the clock is right here. Um, Stefano, we'll start with you. I, uh, I, I sponsored to, uh, to answer the first question because I have no institutional constraints. So the answer is that uh, the EU will not reach strategic autonomy in the foreseeable future, period. My, my two minutes are, first of all, to say that we definitely need a common security and defense policy along the lines of what France and Germany are now proposing so that the EU has more capabilities, can play a stronger role in NATO as a result. And it's no good all of us pushing for 2% of our GDP to go to defense if we continue to waste so much of the money. As we all know from our SDA and f Friends of Europe uh, activities over the years on, on duplication and, and, and the like, uh, it would simply be sort of pouring more beer in the top of the glass while drilling a bigger hole uh, at the bottom. Now, when it comes to strategic autonomy, I, I, I don't see a contradiction. And this is not just because I'm a NATO representative and I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, I don't. I mean, I lived through the period of the Balkans um, uh, in 92. Uh, we all remember that when the United States did not want to get involved. And uh, Jacques Peirce famously declared the hour of Europe. And, and nothing happened because the EU did not have this autonomous ability to cr do, deal with the crisis, to use military pressure as well as economic pressure, uh, and to, to follow through. Uh, and uh, it's clear that uh, well, this was said that the US, with so many commitments around the world, is not going to be able to take the lead in handling every crisis in the European periphery. Look at the way in which the EU countries, France, to Germany in particular, but back by the EU have, have hand, handled Ukraine and the, the Minsk process and, you know, the, the, the crisis management of the Balkans and Kosovo. Gabor, you, you know these examples better than I. Where I think uh, the complementary uh, element with NATO is, is, is in two areas. First of all, to recognize that we need the United States and Canada and the NATO alliance structure to handle the big high-end Article 5 type operations. I know that uh, some of my colleagues uh, in the European circles dream perhaps of one day when Europe could handle every level of threat by, it, by itself. Who knows? But as long as the US and Canada are willing to take on that burden, I think it would be foolhardy, foolhardy for, the Europe, for Europe to say, no, thank you, we don't need you. That, that, that would not be uh, wise. Uh, but uh, we, we've been speaking today of the South, uh, and that's clear. Uh, look at Libya, where the French and the UK initially took the lead, not the Obama administration. All of the things we're talking about tonight, the, the EU clearly is going to be the, 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 the leading uh, actor. Uh, and the second area of complementarity is, as we go forward, you know, let's see how we can make best use of each other's structures. Gabor mentioned this uh, donation of the Commission to our Building Integrity Program, and you know, when it comes to exercises and training activities and all of those things, you're, you're right, Gabor, uh, the, the nations own the forces. Let's try to get more value out of everything we do by opening those activities up to both organizations. 
Uh, so that's the way uh, I, I, I see it ahead. Um, as for the uh, the second question on the, the troll armies, I agree, uh, but it's happening. You know, you do get, for example, the is it the Latvian elves in the Baltic states, these citizens groups that are now actively looking out for trolls and uh, and fake news and intervening, uh, you know, organizing on social media just like the bad guys do. Uh, and, you know, you've got these uh, trailblazers like Elliot Higgins. I greatly admire him, you know, with his Bellingcat organization that's done all of the geo st- you know, stationary location of Russian soldiers and called them out in, in eastern Ukraine. Um, and, and so I think, yes, there, there, there is a role. And, uh, but to some degree, I think it's happening. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if the Internet is going to be for a, a, a tool of freedom, for the individual, then the individual has to take the responsibility for defending it and not just uh, wait for governments to act. Sorry, uh, I abused, but uh, last word, last word. I'll be quick. Um, I think it will, it will be interesting um, to see how cooperation goes once things settle down with the Trump administration, once he is placated by the things that NATO is doing um, in terms of defense spending, in terms of these new counterterrorism measures, which are largely cosmetic, things you're doing anyway, but now you're going to call them counterterrorism so you can point to them when he tells you to do things like that. I mean, I, I, I'm slightly discomfited by the, the amount of sort of uh, hopping around the organization is doing when when Washington says it wants something done. We can't be there that day. Okay, well, why don't 27 of us change our schedules? Okay, um, this one, this meeting now is going to run from eight o'clock in the morning until you know nine o'clock at night because somebody can't be there longer than that. I mean, honestly, it, hopefully things are going to return to normal where you have 29 governments now talking, you know, on sort of equal level, and and there'll be a U.S. ambassador there soon, hopefully, and that relationship will become more communicative. Um, and then I think you can get back to talking about real practical cooperation instead of these optics where you have to uh, sort of make Washington leave you alone. Um, I would, uh, the Atlantic Council actually deserves a big, cre- big credit on the, uh, on, um, with the DFR, uh, DFR lab. Um, they're also doing a lot of work with, with Bellingcat, and I think that this is absolutely the way to go, training citizens how to learn about disinformation, fight back, not retweet. I mean, honestly, simple as that. Um, that is, that's really where we all, we all have to go. And um, I'm looking forward to the, um, at the Warsaw Summit, there being a um, parallel summit on um, spotting fake news and, and how to um, increase the ways to, uh, to uh, work against it in the public. And um, that's it, anyway. Mm. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, so two quick points. Uh, one is on the strategic autonomy, uh, which has... Uh, practically two aspects. Uh, One is uh, uh, action, that is the operational aspect, and the other is the capability aspect. Uh, Jamie already talked about the operational aspect and why it is important uh, for Europe to to have the capacity uh, to launch autonomous operations uh, if there is need for that. Uh, In terms of, of capabilities, here let's not forget we are talking about national capabilities. It's not EU and NATO uh, national capabilities. Uh, What we need to make sure that if we develop national capabilities, uh, which thereafter can be used in an EU context, in a NATO context, in UN, in bilaterally or nationally, uh, that we make sure uh, that there are proper arrangements and the way they are developed uh, are done in a proper way. Uh, But I think 
both aspects of the strategic autonomy are equally uh, important uh, uh, for the EU. Uh, there is a dependency uh, very clearly between EU and NATO on that. Uh, let me just say one thing on that. Uh, so if the current security and defense effort fails in Europe, then not only European security and defense will suffer, not only the European integration process more broadly will suffer, but also the transatlantic burden-sharing will suffer, and so will NATO too. Very easy to come to, uh, to that conclusion. And vice versa. If we are talking about, if you are looking the, at the priorities of the, of the two organizations, NATO's three core tasks, and the EUGS, the Global Strategy's three priorities, at the first glance one may think that, oops, these are actually the same thing, so are we uh, on a collision course? Europe is about protection, so that's not territorial defense. That's NATO's business. That's not EU's business. Protection is Europe's business, and it is to, uh, to mean uh, the internal, external nexus using uh, instruments in a more holistic way. It's about resilience, and that's clearly an EU business, within our own countries, of society, of infrastructure, and of, uh, of, uh, of the institutions. And this is also about the borders. And again, I mentioned already the Coast Guard capability that is being built. So the protection of those. I think I stop here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was certainly a lot of food for thought. So thank you very much to our speakers. I would encourage all of you really to log into our global online brainstorm debating security plus from 26th to 20th of September because a lot of these issues from resilience to EU-NATO cooperation to capabilities, cybersecurity, counter-radicalization and counter-terrorism will all be picked up during this uh, discussion which will bring together about 2,000 um, you know, security experts from around the world. Big thank you again to you, Magnus, and to your team at the Atlantic Council for, you know, helping us put this together. Thank you to all four of you, and thank you all for taking part.